Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is there a world where, hey, I check into a hospital for XYZ reasons because um, my arm hurts? Um, and there's an AI that looks at my electronic medical record, my EMR and says, okay, based on this, you're probably going to have six weeks of potential recovery and you get pinged the second I walk into the hospital. But we fast forward. Firstly, I mean, it's very likely we'll have kind of a user interface at home or even in our pockets, which is, um, either automatically collecting information about different key symptoms and vital signs alternatively we'll just type into it some of the issues we're facing and it will triage us either we'll come up with some recommendations of things that we can try out or it will suggest as the next level up we should have an appointment with someone we're starting to see that for many conditions ranging from mental health to longer term conditions such as cardiovascular disease digital solutions are available that will just set based on um, your current diagnosis will recommend a daily routine what you can be eating and drinking, behavior change, and even certain medications that a person can take. And that means that actually the whole healthcare process and experience is potentially managed by that person themselves. Welcome back to Yang Speaks. I'm Zach Grauman. I'm your co-host. Today, we are continuing our series called The Future Of. And today, we're talking about the future of healthcare. What we're talking about today, we're hyper-focused on the future of home healthcare workers and how we deliver care to an aging population, which I'm passionate about for a number of reasons. One, it's talking about the future of labor and the future of work, something we ran for president on. One of the reasons we ran was what is happening to our labor force. Um, but it also touches entrepreneurship and tech and thinking outside the box in an older industry. And one of the takeaways we talk about in this episode is that the people creating the products in healthcare tech specifically are not the people who are the end users. So if you're designing Uber or you're creating Peloton or Cameo or any of these newer tech startups, you're a user of the product. But in healthcare, you've got young innovators and young entrepreneurs creating products that are for very either tech averse or older older customers. And it's a fascinating dynamic. So today we've got someone who is truly going to impress you. And he's one of those people that makes you 
makes you ask yourself the question, what am I doing with my life? Um, he's that impressive. So Dr. Ben Meruthapu, who's the founder of Sarah, C-E-R-A, it's a at-home healthcare tech company, but also he's worked in government, he's worked in policy, he's been a resident, he's an actual doctor, he's been a resident physician, he's worked in machine learning, he's got this incredible perspective for someone so young. And this is a topic that I think we all need to focus on and how it hits us because I'm 33, I'm an elder millennial, if you will. My parents are late 50s, pushing the early 60s. And what happens to them and how they receive care is going to hit my life very hard. And if you're a little older than me, it's gonna hit you sooner. Maybe for any, some of you listening now, it's already hitting you. And the future of healthcare is gonna impact us all. We need to talk about it, we need to understand it, we need to prioritize the right initiatives from a government standpoint, from a resources perspective, and the finances and the entrepreneurial innovation. It touches so many different aspects of our lives. So I'm excited. Dr. Ben is, I mean, he's a definition of just a world-class innovator um, and in some ways a real-life superhero. So the future of healthcare with Dr. Ben Maruthapu here on Yank Speaks right now. Welcome back to the next episode on our limited series, The Future Of. And today we're talking about the future of healthcare. And honestly, there's not, I don't think there's more of a broader topic we could dive into the future of. But I wanted to at least take a certain lane on the future of healthcare and find someone that touched so many different aspects of healthcare, which I'm proud and excited to have Dr. Ben Meruthapu on. Yang speaks today. Dr. Ben, welcome to the show. Welcome to the future of. Hey, Zach. Great to be here. How's it going? We're good, you know, living, living the dream, as they say. Um, I'm glad to be with you. And, um, you know, I was just saying how you touch so many aspects of healthcare, where both um, you started an organization called Sarah. Um, so you're an entrepreneur, you're a doctor you've worked in policy, you've worked in AI, machine learning, you've done all these, you work government organizations, nonprofits, um, for-profits, like that, that's a rare perspective. So some of my, my best friend, one of my best friends in the world is a pediatric um, heart surgeon, or whatever, there's probably a fancier way for me to say that. Um, but he, one of the things they've told me as a doctor is it's hard because they feel like they can't pick their head up and they're doing great work, but they don't always get to see the big picture because they're literally just helping people on a daily basis. So I'm so curious, tell us a little bit about your background and how you went from, let's call it the med school educational path into now literally cutting edge AI, like startup technology in the entrepreneurial space. Tell us about that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, clearly I have a short attention span based on everything you just said. <laughs> no shame in uh, that. <laughs> I think, um, so I first became interested in healthcare, it's kind of, you know, almost a couple of decades ago where when I was a teenager, I started, I, um, I worked in a hospital for a few weeks just to try it out. And I had no intention to work in a hospital long-term, but it was something that, um, you know, my school was organizing placements, you kind of had to do one. And so that's what I did. And I worked in a local hospital, got a, kind of did work experience, and focus on cardiology. And actually, I was amazed at how what you learned about in the classroom and the power science could have to transform people's lives. Because even what we would consider now is pretty basic bread and butter medications around blood pressure or around people's cholesterol, um, they could completely change 
uh, a person's future. And they may come into hospital in an emergency where they may have had um, a heart attack. And through the medications they get within hours, their outcome and what's going to happen to them weeks, months, years down the line has been changed on its head. And that's why we've seen in many countries cardiovascular mortality being slashed. And that was my first eye-opening experience into healthcare. And I think the amazing opportunity it provides to kind of change someone's life. And then I went to med school, uh, I kind of trained in the UK and the US. And um, when I was in the US, what I thought was phenomenal was how um, everyone that I came across, it could be a student, could be a nurse, could be um, a bioscientist, everyone had something innovative that they were working on. They were all, everyone was working on a new startup or a new idea or a new invention to try and change the way healthcare was being delivered. And that's because at that point in time, you know, going back 10 plus years, um, we were starting to see the digital revolution take hold of many other sectors. You know, Airbnb was picking up pace. More and more people were starting to use Facebook. Uber was starting to expand. Um, all of these household names when it comes to technology in the digital era um, were popping up. And it was clear that in healthcare, sooner or later, um, a similar revolution would come about. And when that came about, it would completely change the face of how we deal with medicine, how we look after ourselves, how we think about health, how we think about longevity as well. Um, and then I moved back to the UK, practiced as a doctor and kind of fell down to earth a bit where when I was practicing in my early years as a doctor, I would spend my mornings following um, the attending or the consultant uh, with kind of pen and paper notes and writing up everything they're saying and writing up the management plan as we go from patient to patient to patient. And then in the afternoon, uh, a similar kind of story of, again, writing out many, many forms for that person or the patients we were looking after, requesting different tasks, and again, mainly spending my time on administrative duties. And I kind of thought to myself, I spent all these years um, studying medicine, spending time in hospital wards, spending time in family care physician practices, and now I'm just really, you know, writing down what a lot of people are saying and kind of doing admin work rather than necessarily trying to focus on directly improving people's lives. And I think that served as a trigger point for trying to look at other ways of improving people's health at scale. And so I, then I kind of branched into policy um, where I was fortunate to have a role advising the CEO of the NHS. And NHS is kind of our key health system here in the UK. So did you just fall into that or what? Like you're, you're at, what, what were your, let me back up a sec. What was your, what did you study in med school and what, what did you end up starting out as in terms of your focus? So my undergrad was in uh, pharmacology. Okay. And um, then I did my clinicals, which was yeah, covering all sorts of topics from kind of dermatology to surgery to general medicine through to um, looking after people in the community through to mental health. Um, I spent some time in the US studying both health policy and using data to analyze um, how innovations, technologies and different interventions in healthcare can improve healthcare. Um, and then and that was on the East Coast in Boston, Massachusetts. Then I came back and yeah, I started practicing as a doctor and it was a bit of a tough slog initially. If I'm honest. And then you ended up, so how'd you end up in, you said with the NIS? Uh, NHS, so the National, NHS, Health, Service National Health Service yeah. is kind of like, it's about 95% of all healthcare services in the UK. It's the main system we have uh, for providing healthcare to people and it's free at the point of access. 
And that's kind of an important piece that uh, Brits are proud of. I mean, the NHS actually ranks ahead of kind of the royal family in terms of what it makes people feel proud of being British. Oh, man, don't. <laughs> I'm just going to not talk about this today because you're going to get the rest of us Americans very upset with how many of us go bankrupt because of healthcare costs. So you end up advising there. Um, and usually from an entrepreneur perspective, entrepreneurial perspective, at some point you get a bug. Um, when did that itch start with you? Was it further down the road or w what happened there? I think, I mean, it first started when I was on the East Coast um, and seeing all these people. I mean, everyone could be, again, to a student in their dorm room trying to build kind of a new platform for trying to manage um, parts of diabetes all the way to kind of a surgeon coming up with a new medical device for treating people and helping with hip replacements. I mean, that was a massive eye opener for me and it was phenomenal. I loved it. And then I, it made me realize the power that innovation technology had to revolutionize healthcare. But it was only years after that, when I was in policy, that I started getting more entrepreneurial. So I set up something called the NHS Innovation Accelerator, which focuses on getting technologies into the NHS at scale. Because the NHS, ironically, even though some people go on about it being, being one of the biggest health systems on the planet, it looks after about a million patients a day. Ironically, getting scale in the NHS, if you are a new innovative technology, is really tough. Um, really? And that's because of regulation, it's because it's a bit fragmented, it's because of ways of working, it's because some people are kind of almost against using innovation culturally. Um, and so I, I tried to build a program that explicitly focused on spreading tried and tested technologies, essentially no-brainers that were cheaper and offered better outcomes across the NHS to ben benefit patients. And within about six months, that benefited three or so million people. So it really scaled super fast. And that's because I think there was a huge hunger in the NHS with especially more forward thinking clinicians and frontline staff to adopt innovations. Because in healthcare, you've got this, this really strange challenge where on the one hand, we are treating people technically better and better, they're living longer and longer. But on the other hand, the demands for healthcare services are only ever increasing. And because of those increasing demands, healthcare costs are going up, as you've just mentioned. And in almost any health, in any, almost any country, we're spending, and countries are spending more on healthcare than they are on arguably anything else. And it's increasing at a faster rate than any other sector or industry, which is probably not sustainable. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors. 
of sleep medicine is a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. In entrepreneurship, like Silicon Valley, there's this mentality, and we had this on the early days of the campaign for Andrews, like move fast and break things, right? Don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness, right? Just go, go, go. And that works in a lot of ways. And, and for a society, you're almost forgiving of that, right? Like if you look at Facebook or Google where they were like darlings in the beginning and now they're kind of villains because we, we gave them a little runway and they you know, you call it, say what you will. Um, but in healthcare, Moving fast and breaking things means moving fast and probably killing people, right? Or really, really seriously hurting people's health. Like you can't be that cavalier in healthcare. Like how, how did that mentality kind of bake into to where you um, frankly ended up starting your own thing? You're right. And I think, I mean, for Silicon Valley, I think there are some learnings there because it's tough to move fast and break things. But then actually, if we look back in the history of healthcare, we do see some of the answers. So if we look at how new medical devices or surgical techniques have been rolled out uh, from x-rays to MRI machines. If we look at how new drugs and medications have been rolled out as well, we have a lot of innovation in healthcare um, that has bubbled up across different countries and different parts of healthcare. And once we evaluate and show that it's relatively safe, it's about having a clear mechanism for rolling that out at scale. Um, because I think many systems are great at having, if they've got a new blockbuster drug to tackle lung cancer, making that available nationwide. But if we have a revolutionary technology or a digital platform that allows people to receive mental health treatment um, on their smartphone, and it does, it's been shown to improve outcomes, actually rolling that out is pretty difficult. And we haven't created the networks and the pathways to make that happen fast. And I think that's, that's the balance. We need to be able to evaluate and safely develop new innovations and solutions. But once we've demonstrated they're safe, we want to be able to roll it out super fast so that everyone who can benefit from them does benefit from them. So is that a policy issue? Is that a business issue? Is that a bureaucracy issue? What, what solves that? All of the above. <laughs> um, Great. So I, I, it's, it's not, I mean, it's not straightforward. I think if we look at healthcare, it's, it's complex. It involves a lot of stakeholders. It's regulated and all of that tends to slow a lot of innovation down. And even, I mean, if you take how, let's say, Apple innovates the iPhone, um, the people who are using the iPhone and the people who are building it and the people who are trying to think of new ways to optimize different features are all the same people very frequently. And there'll all be people who are buying their own um, smartphones and then they're going home in the evening and maybe they're kind of trying out a new app. And that tight alignment between those stakeholders makes it really easy to innovate, to improve, to adopt. I think in healthcare, it's very different. The people who are paying for healthcare are sometimes different from the people who need healthcare, who are different from the people who are administering or prescribing it, who are in turn different from the people coming up with new solutions. 
right? You've got patients, you've got professionals and physicians, you've got health insurance companies, hospitals, and then you've got people who are focusing on different forms of R&D, be it research scientists to data scientists to developers to people building startups. And so creating that alignment and the challenges with it, I think, are some of the reasons why healthcare hasn't been able to transform and embrace technology in the way that many, many other sectors already have. And it's been a bit left behind. The challenge that creates is how we also build businesses that align with government policies. Because again, if healthcare is more complex, it takes more time to build successful businesses that are sustainable. And that has an impact on business models. It has an impact on how they're funded, on venture capital. Um, and you, it, one requires or needs to be more patient. It's very difficult to see the growth that we've seen with ride sharing also occur with healthcare services or digital first healthcare services. And that's why, I mean, we need a combination of governments and policymakers working with entrepreneurs so that we can create long term sustainable solutions in healthcare. Um, otherwise, frankly, entrepreneurs and high quality entrepreneurs are going to be turned off building solutions in health. You just said something really, really key I never thought of before. And I imagine most people would think about that. Where almost every other business, the people creating it are a form of a customer or usually the customer. You know, if you're creating an app, you're creating something that you would want to use, right? You're solving a problem in your life. If you're a chef and you're going to cook something great, it's probably because you love food, right? And so there's a certain connectivity between the creation, the process of creating it, the delivery of the creation, and then the actual end product. But if you're trying to let's say cure cancer, let's say, and Alzheimer's or ALS or what, go down the list, right? You, by definition, don't have that disease. You don't have that problem, realistically, because if you're sick, you actually can't most likely create that. So the there's a disconnect, I imagine, between the creator and the end user that's so void, right? You imagining this army of young people who understand new technologies helping 80 to 90-year-old Americans who grew up in a generation that, that didn't have that. Am I, am I hitting that right? That, that's, what I, that's what I think you're saying. You're exactly right. Exactly. And that's kind of one big challenge in healthcare. I think another one is that, unfortunately, the people who need healthcare the most are usually the ones who are least likely to use technology. Right? To your point, someone who's got severe dementia, they're in their late 80s, they've had a hip replacement, it's unlikely they're going to just pop on a Fitbit and start monitoring their health, right? And, and that presents an additional entrepreneurial challenge, but it also means that if we're not careful, healthcare can actually widen inequalities because it's the healthiest people who are going to use the latest technology um, rather than addressing those inequalities. Talk to me about your company, Sarah, because what I love about your company is you tie it to the human side because you're doing a lot of at-home healthcare work, which is some of the most important and less, almost like least talked about form of work. A lot of people think we can have an army of home healthcare workers um, when it's a really, really hard job. Um, it's, it's physically taxing, it's demanding, it's uh, sometimes infuriating. Um, Tell us about what you've done and like how you've looked at that, that lens we were just talking about, where like the disconnect in, in healthcare products and healthcare innovation creation, if you will. Yeah, so I had the entrepreneurial bug. And I think after my spend, spending my time in the NHS, I realized there was this disconnect between the people who are receiving health technologies and the benefits from them versus the people who really needed it. 
And I think it hit home the hardest when um, my mother actually fractured her back and she needed care and support at home. And we as a family, we tried to organize it and it was really difficult um, because we tried calling different home care companies and I did. And most of them were just too overwhelmed and too busy. They had people they were already looking after. They didn't have carers available. Um, and even when I called them and, uh, and I said, hey, you're busy, but do you mind dropping me a line back? Sometimes it'd be days before they called me back. And that was a real shame because, and a challenge because at a point of crisis, you would go to a care company for peace of mind, but actually they were making the journey more difficult. And it's not because they're not motivated. I think there are a lot of very motivated, very resilient, very good-hearted people in the care sector. It's just that they don't have the tools. And if you walk into a typical home care agency, they're literally using a whiteboard pen and paper to manage their day-to-day -day operations. I mean, I've been in home care agencies where they don't, they're not even using the internet. Um, and so with those tools or lack of, it becomes really difficult to manage your day-to-day -day and to organize for caregivers to visit people in their homes, look after them, and then go to other visits. It's like Lyft trying to coordinate its operations without using any form of technology. Known as smartphones, yeah. It's like you're... Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's almost impossible, right? And so that was, I mean, that really hit home. And that kind of, for me, was an inspiration for trying to build a digital-first home care company um, that really was able to push the boundaries on empowering older people to live better lives in their own homes, rather than going to care homes or, or hospitals or elsewhere, and to use technology to give people the tools they need so that they can provide great care, rather than them being continuously overwhelmed and caught up with administrative work, a bit like when I was a junior doctor and I spent most of my day um, doing admin and paperwork rather than actually focusing on patient care. So in, you, in your model, you can find but I'm assuming your mother could sign herself up, but you could probably do it for her as well. Like, exactly. is that kind of bridging the gap? Exactly. So we digitize the whole care process from how someone's onboarded to how carers are recruited to the matching of carers and users based on different characteristics, such as time, location, the skills of the carer, the needs of the individual, automating a lot of the back office, which takes the headache out, and also digitalizing the user experience for everyone involved, the carer, the person receiving care, the family member, all of them have an app that they can use to monitor and manage the, the service. And it also, from a headquarters and operations point of view, it gives us real-time insights into the care that's being provided in someone's home. And that's really important because in a typical home care company, a carer will visit someone in the home and they will write up using pen and paper notes everything that happened in the visit because they're required to by the regulator and then go to the next one. But if something's gone wrong, or the carer doesn't know what to do, apart from calling up the agency, which many of the times they're too busy speaking to other carers or trying to sort, up, sort out another issue that's cropped up, apart from calling them, they have no way of contacting anyone and getting support. And that's an incredibly disempowering experience if you're a carer to go and visit someone. Let's say they're more drowsy than usual. They haven't been taking their medications. You don't know what to do. And then you've got to go to your next visit that is a really, I mean, it's a very concerning, it's quite a scary position to be in. But by simply using our app, our carers can communicate with other carers, they can communicate with our team and the family, and it all happens in real time. So what is normally a disempowering experience becomes one where they feel comfortable, they feel safe, they feel supported in delivering a great care. 
And that's how we've used digital. And we've seen loads of metrics improve as a result from the quality of the care to the uh, staff experience to the way we're retaining staff. So that doubles actually after we've rolled our app and given people it to our ability to identify health issues in the people we're looking after much, much earlier on because everything's digital, everything's real time. It's all connected as opposed to using a very traditional system, which sometimes takes weeks to pick up an issue. Um, and it fundamentally allows us to provide a safer, high quality and more peace of mind service um, that also is financially more sustainable uh, for the sector as well. We're able to pay caregivers better. We're able to charge less for care. It's a system that hopefully works in the best interest of everyone because we've been able to use technology. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN dot com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. How are you guys able to kind of to your earlier point, how are you guys able to find scale? Are you now you've had this innovation, it works. You've got your metrics. You've got better results on both ends, but both the care worker and the patient um, and the cost. Like, this is great. This is your trifecta, if you will. Um, how'd you scale, given the bureaucracies and challenges we just talked about? Yeah, I mean, I think we're fortunate in home care where there is just a massive demand for it. Mm. With the aging population... doesn't matter. People want it no matter what. They want anything. <laughs> <laughs> they, they want as any care they can grab yeah. onto. I mean, in the UK, as an example... There are about a million people today who need care who are not receiving it. That's a massive potential waiting list. Um, and in the US, it would be more like five times that figure. It is you know, millions of people who need care who are currently not getting it. And at the same time, you've got hospitals who may be packed full of patients and are waiting to discharge those patients from hospital into home, but they can't because the care companies aren't ready. They don't have enough caregivers or they don't have the capacity to deal with it. And that backs up the entire system. You get patients who are stuck in hospital, which means less people can come into 
the ER or be admitted to hospital in the first place. And so you have waiting lists that queue up the other side where people may be waiting for treatments or emergency support, but they're not getting it because the hospital is packed out. And that's in turn because care companies are not there when they need them. And so we have been able to grow through partnering with NHS hospitals and they give us referrals of older people who need to be discharged. And by discharging them rapidly and safely from hospital to home, we're solving a problem for the hospital, we're solving a problem for the patient or the, the person receiving care. And for us, we're getting um, a demand for our services. And in that way, we've been able to scale quite rapidly across the UK. So we're now delivering about 25,000 visits a day, uh, making us one of the largest um, care providers in Europe, actually. So we've grown, I mean, and that's from zero just over four years ago. I'm curious on the training to be a home health care worker. Tell me about how, how they get trained or they're certified elsewhere. Or do you certify them? How do you find your home health care workers and what's the qualifications there? So we, um, we out do the outreach, the recruitment, the training, the onboarding, the vetting. We do everything. And that's because um, the caregivers are the lifeblood of our organization. I mean, yeah, we're all about supporting that. them as much as possible. Exactly. And you want to be able to ensure that um, we're identifying kind of people who are really motivated by doing a great job and providing great care service and hopefully have got a good amount of experience under their belt as well. Um, and that means having a very rigorous uh, approach to recruitment. Um, but also we've digitized most of the recruitment and training process, which allows us again to do it much more scalably than a typical care company. How long is training? So the training is actually continuous. They have an mm. initial um, kind of one week online and offline training program. And then after that, there's continuous training, which they do online and on a quarterly basis. Um, they'll catch up with us in person to, um, to continue their development. And we have a whole career pathway for our carers so that um, it's not just kind of a one-off, almost transactional relationship, but we are investing in them and allowing them to build a professional career over time. You don't need um, a university. Actually, someone with no experience in care can join and within a short period of time start working on the front line and delivering care services. And for us, you're right. I mean, if we look at the global pandemic, we've seen on the one hand a care crisis and a health crisis, which also has really shone the light on how short we are of caregivers and care staff, um, especially when they themselves become ill it make, puts even more pressure and more difficulty on how we support older people. And on the other hand, we have an economic crisis with unemployment going into several millions, regardless of which country you look at. And we've tried to, at Sarah, we try to use technology to actually bring those two crises together and create a solution where people who've lost jobs uh, in airlines, hospitality, retail, we've put them on our training platform, put them on our recruitment platform and allow them to get jobs in the care sector both working at Sarah, but also even for other care companies so that they can have a steady income, they can be back at work and they can make a difference to people's lives, which is really important now more than ever because of the pandemic. And as part of that, we partnered with British Airways, we partnered with Virgin Atlantic, we partnered with a number of different companies so that if they're going through a tough time and having to do restructures and having unfortunately to let people go, they're giving those people also an opportunity to have a very fulfilling career in another sector, like the care sector. And that's where we've come in. How much does a 
home healthcare worker at Sarah make on average or minimum at uh, high end? But how does that work? So, I mean, in dollars, it's up to about $15, $16 an hour. Um, and But if it's kind of depending on the type of care, that it can be more than that. And as they receive more and more training and become more specialized, that hourly rate increases further. And because of our systems and the way we operate, again, people can choose whether they want to work five hours a week or 30 hours a week, and we can keep them pretty busy um, given the demands that we're seeing. And I think to use an analogy, I mean, in the last, in the economic crisis in 2008, I think the gig economy was always born out of that. And lots of um, roles and opportunities for people to get back to work, uh, be it for ride sharing, food delivery and others came about. We're seeing that actually coming out of this economic crisis, the care sector is potentially that opportunity where people can get work, hopefully relatively quickly, and an income should they need it. Right. And it's fulfilling, theoretically, right? Or for most of the time, Absolutely. Practice, you're helping people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so curious. This is a challenge we had on the campaign, and, and I've always had it. We have this massive volunteer army that are that are great. The Yang Gang, we love them, and we would joke. Erica McLeod, who's our um, kind of organizing, and she um, or was a humanity forward, and, and she used to say, um, "I love this analogy." She's like, "We have a a URL." And we have an IRL. We have a URL challenge and an IRL challenge. So we have URL, which is online, and then IRL, which is in real life. And what she meant there was like you had people that are really active on Twitter or certain places, but then when it came to like getting out there and actually knocking on doors or getting signatures, those was that was a completely different group of people, generally speaking. Um, or and the realities were different, really. That she was getting at. Were there times in the beginning days where the IRL and URL didn't line up, and you guys had to flip on the fly or or change things up? How did that How did that learning process go for you as you built it? I mean, we had so many learning experiences. Be a complete uh, roller coaster journey, right? I think even in the beginning, we started more as a marketplace. So if you wanted to organize care for one of your grandparents, you'd hop online, go to our website, and we'd have a list of caregivers in your local area that you could organize yourself to visit your loved one. Uh, the challenge there was it didn't actually solve the problem because most of the time people need care seven days a week. If they have difficulty getting out of bed on a Tuesday, it's going to be the same on a Saturday. And carers typically work part-time, so you'll need a couple at least. And then if they fall on well, or let's say they need to take their child to school, um, they can't make the visit. And you, I mean, maybe you're kind of busy at work. Having to deal with that and organize all of the logistics around that, it's, I mean, it's, it's challenging. And if it means that, let's say your grandfather that morning isn't going to get their diabetes medications, that's really concerning. And that's probably not um, the experience that you're looking for. Rather, I think most people we realize quite early on want complete peace of mind. They want someone who's going to take care of everything, including, you know, end to end, you, we want you to kind of recruit the caregiver, make sure they're completely safe, fully trained, ready to go. And if there are any issues along the way, we want you to take care of it. And if I look back to my own experiences in organizing care, I wanted the same. I wanted peace of mind. I didn't get it. And that was probably the big user need. And so we had to pivot from a marketplace to more of a technology enabled you do it all. managed You had to suit the nuts. Run exactly. the whole thing, right? Yeah. 
exactly. And that was a that was a major change. And then, I mean, we've tried rolling out different product features, and we do this. I mean, we do this every week, and even now, and we're learning that there are some features that really stick, and that others that people just don't want to have.、Um, I think we once had a companionship phone line that we introduced, so that if an older person wanted to talk to someone, they could call in.、Um, alternatively, we would call them on a regular basis, and they didn't want that because they wanted the in-person support. They wanted someone to come and visit them. They wanted to be able to see them and to talk to them, and that goes back to what you were talking about: how the in-person element is so important. And I think that's something more generally for healthcare. We look at AI, digitalization, genomics,、uh, even new devices that's allowing people to kind of monitor and manage their own healthcare. But at the end of the day, there's nothing like someone putting their hand on your shoulder and saying, "Hey, it's going to be okay." So, okay, theoretically, you got a bunch of healthcare workers and a bunch of sick people who need help. You can create an algorithm, machine learning to completely optimize the way these massive demand of home healthcare workers and massive demand of patients interact with each other. Right? Let's say the human side is there. I'm sure there are times where you have a sick patient who really wants Doctor Ben to come every time. They really want Sally to come every time. Right? And the algorithm maybe didn't work. Probably didn't work that way initially. Like, how did how do you balance the like human connection piece? Um, and do people find that disappointing? Find that challenging? Find it exciting to meet new people? How's that work? Yeah, Zach. So initially,、um, we didn't focus so much on that, and we realized it was kind of a key user experience change that made a big difference. And so now we solve for continuity, and we always try and ensure that the same individual, group of individuals, look after that、um, that individual, the person who's receiving care. Um, and we also tend to have almost kind of mini clusters or teams of caregivers who tend to overlap a lot because that allows them to build relationships. And this is where technology has to drive and support the in-person part and the relational part of care, rather than necessarily creating a barrier.、Um, and it's it almost it needs to be invisible and fall into the background, so it's effortless. In the same way that. When you use your smartphone, I mean, there's a huge amount of complexity that goes into making it work. But it's because it has a very straightforward user experience, and it's something that you can always take it out of the box and start working with it immediately. No one needs to really teach you how it works. And in the same way with care and how we're supporting our carers, we need、uh, product features and the user experience that naturally、um, allows them to use our app. And that's why, again, this is another learning whereby initially we built an app that we thought would be great. But we realized carers didn't like it, and、um, <laughs> and so really sitting down side by side, so that all parts of the app and every feature we're building solves their day-to-day problems and the tiniest problems they're experiencing. That's so important. It's not only important for just improving functionality; it's important for just encouraging adoption, so that they don't see it as something they have to use. And I think where technology and healthcare has gone wrong over the past years or even decades is. Technology has almost been forced on people, and it's very clunky. There's no real focus in UX, and as a result, people hate using it. They don't see it as a solution to the difficulties they have have on a day to day basis and the frictions they go through.、Um, they see it as an additional burden. And、um, I mean, giving you a very simple example. So on our app, we have a button that a carer needs to click when they check in to a visit, when they land at the person's home, and when they leave. And initially, it was just a button, and sometimes they would have pocket check-ins. 
So they wouldn't be at the person's home and they check in. And that was a real problem for them because um, they only want to check in when they are actually at the person's home. And for regulatory purposes, it's got to be accurate. And so we converted that into a slider where they got a slide 90% of the way um, to actually check into that person's home. And that small feature made a massive difference to what our carers thought about the app. Because firstly, they knew we were listening to them and responding to it. But secondly, um, it went from a product that actually made their, their day to day more difficult to one that made it more easy. Healthcare is so fascinating because it's, there's the logistics where it's like, does it work or not? It's like black or white. And then there's the point of care, the touch. My dad is a biomedical engineer, works a lot with pacemakers, works a lot with doctors, great surgeons. Um, and there's a certain point, particularly in surgery, where it's like, it's it's almost black and white. Like, did you, did you fix the valve that was broken in the person's heart? Did you put, does the pacemaker work or not, right? Period, the end. But on the other hand, what makes a great doctor is how they interact with their patients, right? Where it's like making them feel okay, calming their nerves. Like a lot of the, the lack of bedside manner, if you will, can actually cause future health problems that they're stressed the entire time. They need to be calm working on recovery. And you can go down the list. And in your, if you think about a delivery app, I, the example I, I love is like, on one hand, like Amazon, they just need to get the package to the front door. It doesn't particularly matter in some ways. But I have a I used to live in New York City and I had two buildings. One was in the front, one was in the back. And I was in the back building. And there would be delivery people um, who would come and, and deliver food. And if they had never been there before, they would get lost in the front building. And it was a pain on them. It wasn't fun for me. I had to go find them. I always felt terrible. And there was no familiarity or touch or learned kind of bedside manner, if you will, in the technology to say, hey, in this building... If there's if they're in the R building, wherever it is, it's to go through the, the courtyard, right? Um, now it doesn't particularly matter, it's just food. But when we're talking about people's lives, these touch points, these care points, I mean they matter, right? And in some ways they're a difference between life and death. They're a difference between like a mass a massively better quality of life or not. The question I'm getting at is where does technology go in the healthcare space? And can we get that bedside manner piece right on healthcare and tech? Yeah, I think I mean, so taking a step back. At the moment, we have a global shortage of healthcare professionals, right? I think at the moment, there's a shortage of around 4.7 million physicians. If you look at um, somewhere like um, Africa, it's got 25% of the burden of disease, but it only has 4% of healthcare staff. And so I think the first role that technology can play is simply empowering healthcare professionals to do more and to prioritize better. I think the more we can do to take some of the burdens and the pressures that uh, nurses, physicians, carers, physiotherapists are having on a day-to-day -day basis. So they, they are really focusing on the needle movers of the healthcare experience, calming someone down, making them feel better, diagnosing the issues they may have with and the conditions they may have with clarity and moving swiftly to a very accurate and robust management plan. And, and that's where technology comes in. And I also think this is where a lot of focus for artificial intelligence um, has uh, been present over the past years, where I think artificial intelligence has a role in both helping us predict who's going to get certain health conditions before they do, so we can be much more on the front foot. It's got a role in helping us diagnose 
uh, from decision support to physicians so that again they can be much more focused on the person in front of them and have all the finger all the facts that they need at their fingertips to even the use of AI in diagnostic imaging like x-rays and uh, retinographs finally to using artificial intelligence and machine learning to help us be much more specific about how someone's health is managed is there a world where hey I check into a hospital for XYZ reasons because um, my arm hurts. Um, and there's an AI that looks at my electronic medical record, my EMR, and says, okay, based on this, you're probably going to have six weeks of potential recovery and you get pinged the second I walk into the hospital. And if the diagnosis, you're tracking and the diagnosis hits and you are ready to offer Sarah, as soon as I'm, I'm ready to leave, is that what you're talking about or even more futuristic? If we fast forward significantly to the future, I mean, the way I see it is in general, healthcare, like many other sectors, is moving to the home, right? We used to go physically to our bank. We used to go to travel agents. We used to go uh, to shopping malls. Now everything's managed online. It's managed at home. It's managed on our smartphone. And I think in a similar way, if we fast forward, firstly, I mean, it's very likely we'll have kind of a user interface at home or even in our pockets, which is um, either automatically collecting information about different key symptoms and vital signs. Alternatively, we'll just type into it some of the issues we're facing and it will triage us. Either we'll come up with some recommendations of things that we can try out, or it will suggest as the next level up, we should have an appointment with someone. And that could be, again, telemedicine. So it's in your home or that person, be it a nurse, doctor, um, a dietitian will come and visit you in your home when you need it. So you get that coaching and support. And then after that, um, even without the human intervention, it's we're starting to see that for many conditions, for, ranging from mental health to longer term conditions such as cardiovascular disease, um, digital solutions are available that will just set based on um, your current diagnosis will recommend a daily routine, what you can be eating and drinking, behavior change, and even certain medications that a person can take. And that means that actually the whole healthcare process and experience is potentially managed by that person themselves. Right? They don't necessarily need to go and see someone. They may even have very limited human interaction. To your example, the diagnosis could just be remotely signed off by a physician who's in a completely different part of the state or a different part of their country uh, and has a number of different recommendations that it needs to sign off. And then you're monitoring and managing your own health condition in your own home, which is a completely different model for healthcare and way more sustainable. And then of course, there will be some instances where we need to go to a health center for let's say an, a diagnostic test, which could be you know, having a camera, um, be it being put in you to see if you're kind of if your guts looking as it should do having a uh, having your um, an echocardiogram for your heart to check if it's beating appropriately or having even a surgical intervention but apart from those very hands-on invasive interventions everything else can be monitored and managed potentially in your home by yourself that is amazing and would change everything yeah, it completely changes everything. And I think that's what I think digital plus kind of data has to offer to the consumer experience in healthcare. I think the other big game changer is going to be around um, 3D printing of Ooh. tissues. <laughs> so we're starting to see already people are 3D printing bladders, um, tracheas, so your windpipe, 
But I think if we fast forward some years, actually, if, if you've got a challenge with uh, your pancreas, which could be diabetes, you've got a challenge with your heart, um, or you've got an issue with, let's say, your kidney, rather than taking medications for 5, 10, 20 years, you just get a new organ printed and replaced. And you just keep replacing it um, just in the same way that if uh, one of the devices that, you that you're using needs kind of a new battery pack or a new memory, um, you're changing it for yourself, that will also turn healthcare on its head. Um, because instead of continuously trying to treat and manage conditions, we're curing them by just replacing those organs altogether. Yeah, you've got a failing heart. We just replace it immediately. We don't have to wait for a donor. I was laughing kind of as you're saying this because how futuristic it sounds of like being able to on-demand healthcare all the time. But just for those of you listening, I've, I used to work with very, very wealthy people in my Wall Street days. Parts of this exists for the uber wealthy. And what you're talking about is with the right technology and management supply and demand, you can actually democratize this for everybody, which is um, and it'll keep getting better and better. Um, you guys can do this in the UK and you've done this really well. And what maybe one of the reasons you have universal healthcare. So the gig economy is um, something people can benefit from because they don't need a job. They can be flexible with their job because they don't need the benefits. Um, they don't need the healthcare benefits from their employer like we have in the United States. Thoughts on Sarah being able to bring this to the United States. Um, and I also think that's important for other companies as well, because if, if you're talking about scale, you're talking about supply and demand, making this a global platform could potentially be a game changer too. Thoughts on international expansion for Sarah and other healthcare companies? Yeah, thanks. So we're actually looking to internationalize this year to another country in Europe. We're looking at a couple of targets, but because we've got so much scale in the UK, I mean, the market is huge, but it, it's we also see the global and international opportunity to provide kind of a a more digital first, a more sustainable, a higher quality, quality model when it comes to aging well. Most countries are in deep need of this. Uh, and so we are looking to internationalize this year. I think the US um, is in our longer term ambitions um, because of the, the way healthcare is, is paid for and the uh, system itself being quite complex, especially when you look at it on a state by state basis. It's something that we're more patient about. But at the same time, I mean, the U.S. is in deep need of a long-term solution to aging and to caring. Um, and I think now with unemployment as high as it is, and we may see kind of longer-term effects of the pandemic and the economic crisis, that obviously provides us with a chance to provide people with new jobs. Um, and that's why we did actually partner with um, Care.com and another company in the U.S. to launch a similar jobs initiative there that we did compared to the UK, where we supported people who lost roles in hospitality, airlines, retail, and others, so that they could get roles uh, in the front line of care. And that was to create 10,000 jobs. But I think there's a much bigger potential opportunity when it comes to care and also this future model of healthcare in the home, um, where people are monitoring, manage their own health conditions with some input from uh, physicians, nurses, and carers, but a limited one. And that really allows us to flip healthcare on its head to make it much more sustainable and to make it, frankly, uh, more convenient and high quality compared to what people currently have. Well, Dr. Ben, I, I applaud you because it seemed I've met a number of, frankly, biotech and health tech entrepreneurs, and you were one of the ones that is really doing this for the right reasons. And, you've, and you guys have proven that both with your 
the 10,000 jobs work you did for the U.S., the United States, but also you've done a lot of work on, you know, people in the U.K. not getting vaccinated because they're not in hospitals, even though they'd meet all the profile and the, the criteria um, to be an early you know, vaccine candidate. My takeaway here is the future of healthcare is going to be like this combination between our humanity and the, the cool tech and um, matching the supply and demand of healthcare and and that point of care bedside manner ability of tech to really customize and um, deliver healthcare in a, in a very human way. What is exciting you? Like what, um, when you look at this five, 10, 20, 30 years from now, what really gets you excited? And I, I mean, maybe it's Sarah in itself, but also just in the, the future of, of healthcare and, and technology in this space. I think, I mean, a lot of things exciting me. I think the genomic revolution is something that we've been talking about for even decades, but only now starting to heat up, which allows us to completely change how we understand people's health and our ability to know whether, I mean, at, the, at almost the point of birth, whether what someone's health is going to look like 30, 40 years down the line and hopefully shift how we're supporting and managing them accordingly. I think the the data revolution as well, um, and we talked about AI, but I think that's so powerful because if you, we can build algorithms that are able to support individuals in monitoring and managing their own health better, firstly, that's extremely scalable at a time where healthcare at the moment is not scaling well. Healthcare has a massive backlog of people it needs to look after, demands only going through the roof. And it allows us, perhaps for the first time more than ever before, to look at people and support them holistically. Instead of a person seeing a cardiologist and then a gastroenterologist and then a hip surgeon, to actually take into account all of that information together, the health information, the genomic information, how they're doing now, how they're feeling now, and to provide them with like with the best possible steps forward to monitor and manage their own health for them to look after themselves, that's going to completely change um, not just allowing people to live people longer, but allowing people to live better, which I think thus far we haven't completely cracked. I think most health systems focus on sickness and minimizing sickness rather than maximizing health. And all of these pretty game-changing technologies as they get put together will allow us to make that leap. I'll say this, Dr. Men, the future can be very bright here, frankly, because of people like you. Um, you have my full support and hopefully the, the Yang Gang's full support. You'll find out in the, in the comment section, I guess, of, of the YouTube page or or, uh, or my Twitter feed or maybe yours, potentially how this goes. But look, from the bottom of my heart, um, thank you for joining. Thank you for letting me pick your brain. Thank you for letting me ask you very simple questions and um, speaking in uh, language that that I could understand. I'll have you back on. We'll have you back on 10 years um, and I'll see how right we were. And hopefully we're just, my, our blinds are so blown and how fast things have changed and, and hopefully for the better. So um, thank you. Thank you. Best of luck with all your work. Go back to saving the world and we will talk soon. Awesome. Thanks, Zach. Really appreciate it.